Hey everybody, Magnus here. I'm going to a barren arctic environment. I'd better create a special version of my uniform to better protect me. I'll never catch up to him now. His car is too fast. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. His secret hidden base is defended by a hundred ninjas. I can't possibly attack it directly. I'd better be careful. That guy might have a gun. That maniac has two bombs set up on opposite sides of the city. I can't possibly stop them both. Without all these gadgets to help my war on crime, I wouldn't be anywhere near as effective. The building is surrounded by police. I have no way to escape. I need stitches. That special spray was the only thing that saved me from the shark. All of these are things that Superman never says. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is a podcast about nothing. Actually, no, it's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, my podcast follows an eight-episode structure. I do six episodes about whatever subject I want, and then I spend the seventh episode with Chris Honeywell talking about one of the DC Paradox Press line of big books, And then finally, the eighth episode is always, always, always dedicated to Smallville. And then I start all over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Now, I've been known to use those six episodes for a mini-series dedicated to a single topic, theme, idea, character, creator, or just whatever. The plan right now is that after my incredibly fucking epic and huge 100th episode, I intend to use the rest of 2015 and a good bit of 2016 making my way through several six-episode miniseries. It basically works out to almost a full year of six-episode miniseries and, and, and all of that. It's just not from beginning to end, you know, January the 1st to December the 31st, but it basically covers 12 months, so about a year. Take it or leave it. So... Because of that, and before things get really crazy, you know, I just want to enjoy the downtime. Talk about comics that I won't have a chance to talk about for a really long time. And considering how long it's going to be before I can talk about just plain old comics outside of a dedicated theme or series or topic or just whatever else, it makes sense to me to, to make the most of it right now by talking about comics that mostly have nothing to do with each other and so because of that the comics that you're going to hear me go through in this series they have absolutely nothing to do with each other they don't really relate to one another apart from the fact that i just feel like talking about them right now now as i've said before one of my favorite types of stories in comics is that one crazy night thing where We follow a character or maybe a group of characters around for just a few hours and see all the wacky trouble they get in. 
And on that basis, I especially love Superman stories like that. Because to me, Superman's the ultimate multitasker. I mean, it's nothing to him to wake up in the morning, get ready for work at the Daily Planet, rescue a bus full of nuns from some third-rate gang of wannabe supervillains during his commute, write up the story when he gets to his office, break for lunch, get interrupted by the legion of superheroes who've traveled back in time because they need his help with something or other going on in the future, then spend several hours in the 31st century, come back to the present just a few seconds after he left, go back to work, get assigned some bullshit news story by Perry, go out there and make his notes, rescue orphans from a burning building, fly back to the Daily Planet, file both stories, go back home, patrol Metropolis as Superman for a while, fly back home again, make out with Lois, and then hit the sack and do it all again the next day. And not that kind of thing exactly, but that's the kind of story that I just love the most, and that's the type of story that we're going to be talking about today here in this first segment. As if that wasn't obvious... Anyway, so the story in question here is The Adventures of Superman, number 440. Publisher is DC Comics. Cover date is May 1988. On sale date is January the 26th, 1988. Cover price is 75 cents. Editor is Mike Carlin. Writer is John Byrne. Plotter and penciler is Jerry Ordway. Inker is Dennis Yankee. Yankee? Never really figured out how to pronounce that. Letterer is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Anthony Tallin. And the cover is drawn by, uh, was penciled by Dave Gibbons and inked by Jerry Ordway. And the title of the story is The Hurrieder I Go. Superman watches a demonstration of Emil Hamilton's Superman robot. The test doesn't go very well as the Superman robot's pretty fragile. Too fragile, in fact, to be of any practical use. Still, Professor Hamilton's force field has obvious defensive and offensive capabilities, so that's good news. Superman leaves Hamilton's lab and he's giddy about a date that he's got planned for later on in the evening. All we know for sure is it promises to be one hell of a hot date. Right now, though, Superman lets himself get struck by lightning and then shrugs it off like, like it never even happened. Meanwhile, Jerry White visits Jose Delgado in the hospital. Jose recently got totally fucked up during a showdown with the Combator. The doctor then comes in and tells Jose that he's never going to be able to use his legs ever again. In the hospital's lobby, Jerry runs into Lois, who gives him all kinds of grief about how he never really appreciated Jose until he nearly died. Basically, Lois all but tells Jerry what an asshole he is. Meanwhile, Superman swoops in for a meeting with Batman in Gotham City. Batman hands over a scrapbook full of all kinds of crises and catastrophes that never quite happened. And then, about halfway through the scrapbook, the subject switches from averted disasters to stories about Superman. You see, prior to this issue, Superman gave the scrapbook to Batman to figure out who compiled it and what the story with it's all about. Batman did his job a little too well, though, because based on the evidence in the scrapbook, he's figured out that Clark Kent is Superman's true identity. Batman says Superman shouldn't worry, though. He's not going to tell anybody uh, about that. Superman replies by saying he knows he won't. Mr. Wayne? Meanwhile, back in Metropolis, Lex Luthor considers the possibility that Superman might actually be a robot, but instantly dismisses it. Only a human being could give Lex as much grief as Superman has. Right around that moment, Pearl, one of Lex's ubiquitous, scantily clad female assistants, brings in a file about Maggie Sawyer. Lex takes a look at the file and he realizes that he now has Maggie Sawyer right where he wants her. Meanwhile, on his way to Smallville, Clark, or I should say Superman, foils a uh, shooting spree at a, at a Macklin's fast food restaurant. Superman puts a stop to it and then wraps the would-be shooter to his own truck using his own gun. The police can pick him up later. Unfortunately, the shooter's artillery hit a gasoline tanker. The truck's out of control and is about to crash into the fast food restaurant. 
Superman pulls the driver out of the cab and then flies the truck to the upper atmosphere where the lack of oxygen suffocates the fire. By the time Superman comes back with the truck, the restaurant's uh, patrons have all cleared out to cheer Superman on. The bad news in all this, though, is that Superman's cape is now smithereens thanks to the fire. Meanwhile, in the frozen wastes of the Antarctic, a group of geologists are staring at an unconscious young woman wearing an outfit that's kinda, sorta like Superman's. The really weird part is that Superman only first started operating in public wearing his uniform just a few years before this issue took place, but this chick's been buried under solid fucking ice for at least a couple of centuries, so what the hell's going on here? And right at that moment, the mystery girl opens her eyes. She's wide awake. As all that's going on, Superman lands at the homestead on the Kent farm and lets himself in. He gives Martha the scrapbook for safekeeping because he doesn't know what the hell else to do with it, at which time Martha then confesses that it's her scrapbook. It was stolen along with a bunch of other family memorabilia way back in Superman number two, and she's been looking for it ever since. Superman tells Martha that they're going to figure out all this, all this business with the scrapbook later on. For right now, he's got something he needs to attend to, and he really needs to look his best. So Martha gives him a brand new cape, and Superman whisks off. Later, Superman sees Wonder Woman standing next to a frozen lake. Superman thinks to himself that she arrived for their date a little bit earlier than he was expecting. Superman lands beside her, takes her in his arms, and then they make out under the full moon. The end. So, what did I think? I gotta tell you, I've always loved this story. I mentioned a while ago how much I love those kind of one crazy night types of stories, and this one's awesome. If you think about it, Superman's the perfect character for this kind of story. His powers let him go pretty much anywhere, pretty much instantly, so he can cover a lot of ground in a pretty short amount of time and then deal with all different kinds of little mini-adventures along the way and in the process hang out with all different kinds of, uh, of different characters and everything. And something else? Just for a moment, think about all the bullshit that happens in this issue. Superman shoots the bull with Professor Hamilton, gets struck by lightning, travels to Gotham City, figures out Batman's secret identity, rescues a fast food restaurant full of innocent people, takes a quick trip into space, meets his adoring public, gets a new cape, and then plays tonsil hockey with Wonder Woman. As all that's going on, a lot of subplots that were bubbling at the time get moved forward in a big bad way in this issue. We find out Jerry White's got a whole new respect for Jose Delgado. Jose Delgado finds out he'll never use his legs again. Jerry White finds out that Lois Lane has absolutely no respect for him. Lex Luthor finds out that Morgan Edge is so full of shit it's coming out his ears. He also finds out that Maggie Sawyer's gay, and arguably most important of all, the ball gets moved forward in terms of the whole mystery of the chick in that kind of sort of Superman outfit. It'd be a while yet before all of those things reach any type of a conclusion, especially the thing with you know the girl in the Superman outfit, because that's not going to happen until the Supergirl saga. But again, the subplot gets moved forward here. From a technical standpoint, a lot of shit gets done in this issue. There's literally not one wasted page. Everything contributes something either to character, to narrative, or just whatever else. Adventures of Superman number 440 could be used in writing classes about how to do storytelling efficiently. Now... I've not talked a whole lot about John Byrne during the life of this show, and there's no real malice behind that or anything. I just, I haven't had a chance to talk about any of his comics on the show before this moment. There's, like I say, no real 
you know, dark secret agenda to that. But at the same time, John Byrne's a legend, and there's a damn good reason for that. In fact, one thing I've noticed about John Byrne is that during this era of his career, I don't know so much about before this and after this, because I haven't really paid that much attention, but at least during this era of his career, he tended to prefer doing these, these types of done-in-one stories that developed uh, subplots. I say that because I'm at a real loss to think of a lot of big storylines that he ever did during his time on Superman. In most cases, he seemed to prefer doing some kind of resolution to the story at hand while setting up new subplots for comics later on. I mean, sure, the Supergirl saga's a major exception to that. Fine. Now go ahead and find me six more. Good luck. And... Honestly, none of this is a criticism. At least not anymore. When I was younger, it kind of bothered me that John Byrne didn't do more multi-part storylines. But nowadays, I think I prefer the sort of loosey-goosey continuity of these issues where you get occasional major resolutions. But otherwise, you get what kind of seems like one story resolved inside of one issue with subplots either carried through or introduced through several issues. And that just kind of plays to my fanboy muse right now. I love this approach. And I love Burns' work on Superman. Now, to be fair, one of Burns' infamous weaknesses when it comes to Superman is Lois Lane. And look, we'll never know how things might have turned out. All we have to work with is the issues at hand, but... Based on that, John Burns' Lois Lane is a kind of unlikable bitch. She treats everybody like goat shit, and she always has this cold shoulder ice queen attitude going on. And when you look back at the beginning of things, I mean, it's not as obnoxious, her attitude problem, this this sort of just bitchy personality that Lois Lane has. It's not as obnoxious during the Man of Steel miniseries, because honestly... She's not a major character there. But it gets pretty out of control starting in Superman number one and then going right on through to the end of Burns' run on the character. But otherwise, he's got a pretty solid handle on who these characters are and what makes them tick. To this day. You know, I really regret John Byrne leaving Superman. And I mean that from the angle that he obviously wanted to do a lot more with the character. And don't get me wrong, Byrne laid down one hell of a foundation that other writers were able to build on and expand from. And they took Superman into some amazing stories. And those are stories that I cherish to this day. All I'm saying, though, is that it would have been, it just would have been awesome if if Byrne could have hung around for another two or three or four years and really taken this version of Superman into some cool directions. Make sense? Really taken this character to the next level. Now, as I say, I love how things ended up playing out, but I'd be lying if I told you that I don't wonder what might have been. Now, all of that's just the writing. You can't ignore the art in this book, though. <clears throat> I'm a Jerry Ordway fanboy from way back. Now, the first time I can re- uh, that I can really recall loving Ordway was with Superman number 51. And you know what? I'll probably cov- uh, cover that issue at some point, so I don't want to talk too much about it here. But just know that my love and appreciation for Ordway... There's a sense in which it's a kind of retroactive thing. Because it just took me a while to get used to, I guess is what I'm saying. Now, as it goes for Adventures of Superman number 440, yeah, Ordway's line style isn't as solid and defined here as it would be even just a few years after this this issue came out. And the thing is, Jerry Ordway's the type of artist who's constantly improving. But that doesn't mean I can't still appreciate his older stuff. And man, the art in this issue is freaking gorgeous. There, I said it. 
I said it. Now, but seriously, dude, go back and check this shit out. I mean, on page five, Superman gets hit by a bolt of lightning and then swoops through some clouds. And while he glides through some cloud cover, he's trailed by a pillar of fire left over from the lightning strike. It just looks awesome. Another kind of neat thing is Superman's meeting with Batman. Now, honestly, it's tough to be sure, but here and there, Batman kind of resembles Alec Baldwin. Now, it's not obvious, it's not overdone, and you know what? It's not even a sure thing. I mean, this is me being just, like, totally subjective here, but the way Batman looks on page 10 in the third panel... I don't know. It just looks a tiny little bit like Alec Baldwin to me. And, and and that's the thing about Jerry Ordway. Even if I'm totally wrong about the Alec Baldwin thing, Jerry Ordway's pretty well known for doing just little things like this every once in a while. You know, sneaking in these little Easter eggs into his comics. But here's the thing. It never gets distracting. It's there, and then it's gone. And it doesn't call too much attention to itself. So, I guess my point here is, don't fuck with Jerry Ordway. He will end you. Anyway. So, I think that's basically that. So, time for a break. I'm going to go get a cheeseburger and then come back to talk about some more Superman comics in just a few moments. invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. The dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsen.com. Every legend has a beginning. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman Superman in the the Bronze Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
everyone. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries to Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Okay, I'm back now, and to resume my discussion, I want to talk about Superman, Volume 2, Number 19. Publisher is DC Comics, cover date is July 1988, on sale date is March 22nd, 1988, cover price is 75 cents, cover artist is Jerry Ordway, 
for some reason. Writer and penciler is John Byrne. Inker is John Beatty. Letterer is John Costanza. A lot of Johns here. Colorist is Petra Scotis. And editor is Mike Carlin. The title of the story is The Power That Failed. And again, this is Superman, Volume 2, Number 19. The story begins with Jimmy Olsen visiting Cat Grant's apartment. Cat's efforts to seduce Jimmy are interrupted when a spaceship lands in the West River in Metropolis. The Special Crimes Unit's unable to send divers down to the ship, though, because the water's way too hot for anybody to go in there. That's why Maggie Sawyer's relieved when Superman arrives on the scene and volunteers to explore the ship. Superman dives into the drink, and while he heads down to the ship, he considers how differently history might have unfolded without the presence of superhumans on Earth. He thinks to himself that superpowered people have existed since the dawn of time, and so probably nobody's qualified to say how history might have been different had superhumans never existed. Soon, Superman arrives inside the spacecraft. He believes it's too small to be capable of interstellar travel and worries that there might be a mothership nearby. Superman's investigation into the ship, though, gets interrupted suddenly by his abrupt loss to hold his breath for extended periods of time. Superman's forced back to the surface and then tells Maggie everything that's happened. He's worried because he has no idea what caused his power to stop working. Meanwhile, in the frozen wastes of the Antarctic, the geologists I talked about in the last segment are trying to stop the girl in the Superman outfit from leaving their outpost. She forces her way through the door, though, and then takes to the skies, resolving to go to America, to Smallville. Next morning, back in Metropolis, Superman flies to the Daily Planet and switches back to his true identity of Clark Kent. As he makes his way through the office, he continues worrying about what caused his power to just short out on him. Clark rules out kryptonite since it doesn't work that way, but then again there was that time back in Superman number 10 where Lex Luthor made his powers go haywire, so Clark wonders if this is maybe the flip side of that. His thoughts are interrupted by Lois brushing by him and giving him the cold shoulder. She's having this little hissy fit, you see, because he walked out on their little date back in Action Comics number 600. Lois says that she's sick of it. She's given Clark every possible chance, and he always finds a way to completely fuck her over. Why, Lois has been so kind, patient, and supportive that she makes Mother Teresa look like a whiny two-year-old in the middle of a temper tantrum. Nobody has suffered more slings and arrows, sacrificed more for the world's betterment, or put up with more bullshit than St. Lois Lane. And Clark's a major asshole for not falling to his feet anytime she comes into the office in worship and adoration of Lois Lane, his queen and all-time role model, a goddess given human flesh and forced to suffer through other people's shortcomings, flaws, failures, and other mediocrity. You see, Clark should be grateful that Lois even knows his name, but instead, like a major asshole, he refuses to give Lois her proper homage as the center of the entire motherfucking universe and queen of all she surveys. But Lois isn't putting up with him anymore, so he may as well try his little games with that hooker, Cat Grant. I mean, gee, I wonder why Clark might have bailed on her back in Action Comics number 600, don't you? Anyway, before Clark can tried defending himself against Lois acting like a total freaking lunatic, Jimmy swings by the Daily Planet building with his Mrs. Robinson look-alike mother along for the ride. Mrs. Olsen's worried about her son, you see. She, she worries about all these dangerous assignments that Perry's always sending Jimmy on. A sensitive little boy like Jimmy might get hurt, you see. But before she can talk Clark's ear off about it, she notices a picture of Perry White from about 18 years earlier when, he's, when he was on assignment in Southeast Asia. What's caught Mrs. Olson's attention is that her husband, Jimmy's father, who's been missing for nearly 20 years, is plainly visible in the background of that photograph of Perry. Elsewhere, Dr. Gretchen Kelly drops in on Lex Luthor, who's recovering after surgery. 
He had to have his right hand amputated because of radiation poisoning from the kryptonite ring he's worn for years so as to keep Superman out of his face. The radiation eventually poisoned his right hand, though, and the doctors had to give it the old chop. But Dr. Kelly's arrived to outfix, uh, outfit Lex with a big, scary cyborg hand to replace the one that he's just lost. Lex isn't happy about it, though. Not one bit. As a matter of fact, he promises to get even with Superman for this. Because, you know, it was Superman's idea that Lex wear a kryptonite ring all those years. Later that evening, Superman visits the police station for an update on the spaceship. Maggie tells him that the boys from the lab all say there's really nothing unusual about, uh, about that spaceship. It's made of pretty conventional materials and from a pretty conventional design. Superman takes this as confirmation that the ship didn't cause his problem in the West River. Which means the occupants of the spaceship probably did. Superman excuses himself and, at that moment and goes on patrol in Metropolis. Not a moment too soon either, because Thaddeus Kilgrave's chosen that very moment to escape from Stryker's Island in a giant freaking Kirby tank with giant freaking plasma guns. Kilgrave blasts Superman in, while he's in midair with the giant freaking Kirby tanks, giant freaking plasma guns. Superman mocks him the entire time, though, asking Kilgrave to aim for his lower back because Superman needs a real good massage right now. Suddenly, Superman crashes to the ground, which Kilgrave thinks was caused by his giant freaking Kirby tank with giant freaking plasma guns. But the actual truth is that Superman suddenly lost his ability to fly, too. That is why he fell back down to the ground. Kilgrave wants to make the most of the moment, though, so he runs Superman over with a giant freaking Kirby tank with giant freaking plasma guns. Luckily, though, Superman's invulnerability holds out. Superman then tears the giant freaking Kirby tank with giant freaking plasma guns apart. Out of nowhere, though, he suddenly loses his super strength. Doesn't matter, though, because luckily he's already shredded the giant freaking Kirby tank with giant freaking plasma guns by that point. So, once Kilgrave's back in custody... Superman decides to super speed home by running across the water. A little trick he learned from the Flash, who does that exact thing every time he needs to zip down the gulf to pick up a Guadalajara gutbuster burrito in Mexico. Superman soon loses his super speed, though, and wipes out in the water. Luckily, though, a passing tugboat sees Superman thrashing around and picks him up. Before dropping him off on the shore, Superman asks the ship's captain for one last favor. Later... Back on dry land, Superman tries to figure out the contours of his diminishing superpowers. He fires up his X-ray vision, and it's immediately switched right back off. And now he can't turn it back on. It's like the power is somehow being taken away from him every time he uses it. Out of nowhere, Superman gets smashed through a brick wall by a Mack truck. Superman survives, but soon discovers his invulnerability is now gone too. Before Superman can figure out his next move, he's interrupted by a giant freaking purple alien called Dreadnought smashing through another brick wall, claiming that his partner Siphons dra uh, drained Superman's powers away one by one and given them to Dreadnought. Dreadnought tells Superman that he's in big doo-doo this time. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, before I get into that, feels like I should tell my origin story with this issue. Basically what happened was, I went to the mall one night to get a haircut. I was there with the parents, and I was about 12 years old, and I don't know about the rest of you, but that, at least for me, was just about the time I stopped wanting to be chained at the hip to my parents all the time. Now, I don't know if that's normal or not, but what I can tell you is, I was always a little bit more independent than my older brothers, so it really wasn't a big deal to me to break off from the group and then just go do things on my own. So my parents hooked me up with the money to pay for my haircut, and off I went. No big deal. And at least up to a point. I mean, I, to be honest with you, another little misadventure unfolded at the haircut place, but maybe that's another story for a, another time. Anyway, so... The prearranged meeting place was actually right in front of Walden Books. My parents had told me that they'd be there in about a half hour, which 
I figured would have been enough time to get my hair cut and then maybe check out the comic book spinner rack inside of Walden Books. That was the plan. Ended up not happening, though. Number one, because my parents were running just really late. And number two, because some dude had set up a comic book kiosk right in front of Walden Books. Now, that may seem a little strange, you know, just just to hear it. But keep in mind, this would have been around end of 1992, beginning of 1993, around there. And back then, comics were freaking everywhere. Hell, I've heard some people say that they saw comics for sale, with even with back issue selections, inside of sporting goods stores. So a comic book stand in the middle of the mall all of a sudden doesn't seem all that unusual, now does it? Anyway, unlike a lot of other comic stands and stuff like that, this particular comic stand actually had a minor back issue selection. Nothing special, don't misunderstand me, but he had some interesting stuff. So I skimmed through his, uh, his uh, collection of Superman back issues because at that moment I'd been on a major Superman kick. Specifically, though, I was on a John Byrne Superman kick, and I wanted to read as much of that stuff as I could find. And it wasn't very easy to find back then, because John Byrne was a much bigger rock star back then than he is today. In fact, to use Wizard Magazine parlance, John Byrne was a hot artist. So imagine my surprise to find a near pristine copy of Superman number 19 in that dude's back issue selection. Homeboy wanted two bucks for it. Well, even back then, I never saw a back issue that I didn't want to haggle over, so I tried talking him down on the price. Now, he wouldn't budge on the price tag, but he ended up throwing in some free stickers or some such bullshit, which I considered to be a very critical moral victory on my part. See, the problem here in all this is I'd only been collecting comics for just a couple of years by that point. Now, as I've said over and over again, I am a lifelong Superman fan. But as far as collecting was concerned, I'd only committed to to that just a couple of years before this incident, and so I had a pretty small collection at that time. But obviously, Superman was my top priority. Thing is, though, it's pretty hard to keep up with the current stuff and get caught up on all the back issues when you only have a 5 or $10 allowance to work from. Now... I had a pretty limited selection of Superman comics from right after the reboot. I mean, sure, I had the Man of Steel miniseries and maybe the first few issues thereafter, but I didn't have a very extensive run of anything until around 1991 or so. And that's a pretty fucking big gap when you think about it. But anyway, so I paid the guy his $2 and found a place to sit down, and then I read the issue. And man, talk about love at first sight. Now, I knew that John Byrne was a major talent in the industry, but you could tell that the extra couple of years that he'd spent working on the Superman titles had really sharpened his game in terms of the model for each character. Now, fair is fair. To this day, I'm not crazy about Burns' version of Lois Lane, but the rest of the characters looked freaking amazing in this issue. A good example of what I'm talking about here is on pages uh, two and three. Uh, uh, Byrne wrote Cat Grant as a sl- uh, as being slightly temp- uh, tipsy in this scene, and damn it, she looks slightly tipsy in this scene. On top of all that, Jimmy looks less like Alfred E. Newman by now, here in Superman number 19, and he looks more like John Burns' Jimmy Olsen. And he also looks fairly uncomfortable about being hit on by an older woman, too. And it's not forced. He really looks that way. It's just solid storytelling on Burns' part, and it works for me. Also on page 3, 
we see Jimmy and Cat lit up by the spaceship's massive engines. Now, I forget what you call this art style. It's uh, chiaroscuro or something, I think, but I, I don't know. It's, but it's that really high contrasty art style where, at least in this case, the panels are completely white and all you really see are Jimmy and Cat's shadows. One of the major hallmarks of Burns' style, though, is his tendency to do just kind of strange things with the camera, quote-unquote, this imaginary camera that is the comic book page. An example of what I'm talking about uh, comes on page four in the second panel, where the imaginary camera is tilted just a little bit so that Superman is landing straight down, but he comes from the right corner. On a subconscious level, that's just more visually interesting. If the angle had been perfectly straight, all the straight lines and straight movements would have been a little boring. Visually, I mean. But by tilting the angle just a little bit, Byrne gives the entire image a, a sort of curve that it doesn't actually have. It just seems like it has. And I gotta tell you, it's just a more satisfying way to look at the panel. So I guess what I'm saying here is, you know, leave it to burn to cover little details like that. Another cool sequence comes on page 5 where Superman explores the spaceship. Again, Byrne knew that he needed to add distortion to the image so that it looked like the imaginary camera really had gone underwater. It's drawn realistically enough for everything to be recognizable, but at the same time it's distorted enough to understand that Yes, we are, in fact, underwater. It's just a cool little scene. Now, again, fair is fair. The coloring job by uh, Petros Cotis helps quite a lot here. But not everything the guy does is gold. In the very next sequence, just to kind of give you an idea of what I mean, I think he kind of dropped the nachos by coloring the girl's legs so that it looks like she's wearing pants underneath her skirt in her Superman costume. And it's just an awkward way to do the job. But anyway, back to Byrne. Another little flourish is Superman's arrival at the Daily Planet on page 9 in the second panel where Superman swoops straight, uh, straight down and then turns on a dime. It's this perfect 90-degree angle and then flies in through a window. In this one panel, Byrne's able to sell the size of the Daily Planet building and the globe, while also putting enough skyscrapers in the background to remind us that, yes, this really is Metropolis. This next note relates more to a misunderstanding on my part, but the first panel on page 13 shows Maggie leaning against her desk and Superman sitting on her windowsill. Now, like I said before, I didn't have much of a Superman collection at that time, so I didn't know the truth about Maggie Sawyer. Because of that, I interpreted Maggie and Superman's body language to be kind of flirty. Now, yeah, that ended up being totally not the case, but I still think it says something about Superman and Maggie's relationship that even though they're not really into each other, they're still comfortable enough around one another to just let their guards down a little bit. Now, true, there are limits to how honest they can be with each other because each of them sitting on a pretty big secret when you come right down to it, but they do have a rapport with one another. And when I was a kid, I always wanted Maggie Sawyer to be Superman's Commissioner Gordon. Scenes like this were why. And even now, I think the idea of Maggie being Superman's main contact with the police force has a lot of disco potential to it. Moving on, the first panel on page 14 is pretty masterful stuff from a technical standpoint. Kilgrave's in the foreground, and his facial expression pretty much tells you everything you need to know about how insane this character really is. Meanwhile, you've got Superman zipping right through the, mid, uh, the midground in this image. He's making a straight face, but the fact that he's flying sideways through the air with his arms folded pretty much tells you that he's already mentally checked out of this thing. 
He's not taking Kilgrave seriously, so he's going to toy with him just a little bit and throw a few zingers at him before, you know, for good measure before returning him to prison. As all that's going on, Burns constructed the panel to tell us all that stuff while still leaving plenty of space for the dialogue balloons. And consider this. Both characters have quite a lot of dialogue in that single panel on page 14. But nothing looks too crowded or messed up. This is just plain old-fashioned good storytelling. Let's see. Next, there's some Kirby crackle at the bottom of page 14 and the top of page 15, which is kind of neat. And then on page 18, panel uh, 5, Superman looks kind of like Christopher Reeve. It's not overdone, and it's not distracting, but if you catch it, you catch it. And honestly, I've never minded little flourishes like that. I've always felt like, just to kind of clarify, I've always felt like that Superman should look like Superman. But back in the 80s and 90s, artists would sometimes throw little hints of Kirk Allen or George Reeves or Christopher Reeve into their art once in a while. And again, it's nothing major. It never detracted from the art. But it was used for occasional flavor to the visuals. And it just works for me. And it's a lot better than basically tracing a bunch of movie trading cards to get Reeves' perfect likeness down, but Gary Frank couldn't be reached for comment on that. Another cool moment's on page 20, in the third panel, where Superman gets run over by that Mack truck running at top speed. It's just a really powerful and painful image to look at. Byrne even tossed in motion lines and motion blurring and other things to sell the truck's velocity. Anyway, so far as the writing goes, I get the idea that that Byrne had the same view of Cat Grant that the characters themselves do. And I guess what I mean by that is that she may have her strong points, but she pretty much is the Trant that everybody thinks she is. I think that's how John Byrne sees her. Or saw her, anyway. Her attempt to seduce Jimmy is... A little creepy, but underneath it all, so to speak, you can't help thinking that Byrne thought of Cat as a total floozy and didn't pay her much attention beyond that. As a matter of fact, you know what, now that I think about it, you know, to my recollection, Cat Grant didn't get much of a better characterization until after John Byrne left, which is just about when Jerry Ordway and Dan Jurgens took her indifferent and I'd argue, better directions. Now, in terms of other stuff, I pretty much tore Lois up back when I was going through the story summary, and the reason behind that is I just don't like Byrne's version of Lois, whether whether it's the drawn version of Lois or it's him writing her. It's The way I see it, it's the one major weakness in John Byrne's Superman repertoire, at least if you ask me. She just looks off, somehow. On top of that, he writes her like a cold, stuck-up shrew of a human being. I mean, there's just nothing likable there at all. In fact, you have to wonder just what the hell Clark sees in her at this stage of the game. I mean, it's obvious that he's got the hots for her, but it's impossible to say why, because all she ever does is behave like a spoiled brat. Now... Look, it's not worth getting mad about, especially when the second part of this storyline does sort of redeem Lois a little bit, but it still ticks me off every time I read this thing that she was ever written like this in the first place. Moving on, page 12 goes right to Lex's character. He wore that kryptonite ring for years, just to piss Superman off. But when he gets poisoned by the kryptonite himself, who does he blame? Superman. It never even occurs to Lex to blame himself for exposing himself 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for years to an unknown type of alien radiation. Nope. He blames Superman for it. It goes directly into who Lex is as a character. I mean, look, 
he's not just a megalomaniac. I mean, look, he's that too. Don't get me wrong. But Lex Luthor, at least in John Byrne's estimation of the guy, is a total sociopath. Nothing is ever this guy's fault. It's got to be the work of Superman, the police, people who are jealous of him, or, or whatever else. Now, when you tell serialized stories in comics, you constantly have to refresh readers, not only about whatever storyline's underway at that moment, but also the character dy- uh, dynamics at play. You have to remind readers not only what has happened, but also who these people are. John Byrne manages to do just that for Lex Luthor in one freaking page in this issue, and it's awesome. I just love it. So, anyway. Now, to the best of my knowledge, Superman number 19 has never been reprinted anyplace else. I mean, pretty much, if you don't have this original comic book, you don't get it. Well, I I say that, actually. I think it's been reprinted in those Man of Steel, that series of Man of Steel reprints, but otherwise, I think this is pretty much it, so... But it, it's not going to set you back all that much. It's a good, fun issue, and I hi- highly recommend it. Anyway, so that's basically it for me. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opening. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.